RadioInfluence.com. Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 101260 with your questions, comments, or smart-ass remarks. Performance, everybody. I am Jeff Rochelle, and we're your weekly source for performance information. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. If you have any questions, comments, smart remarks, reach out to us. Crushperformance.com is the website. Info at Crushperformance is our email. We answer every message we get. So if you have something you'd like us to investigate, if you're looking for some help, if you have a comment on the show, let us know. We love it all. On Twitter, you can follow me at Jeff Crush and on all of the social media. Search out Crush Performance and you can reach us there. All right, we've got to get to it here because we've got a lot to pack in, not just today, but over the next three weeks. We're kicking off a three-part series on the Crush Talent and Talent ID theme, which is one of our major themes here for 2021, right alongside the Crush Brain Game. We just wrapped up an incredible three-part series there. You can go back to our website and get that. Just fascinating stuff when we look at the brain. Uh, the Science of Sweetness is underway. That is going to be a monthly series we've got going. But I'm really looking forward to this conversation over the course of this year on talent and talent ID. Dr. Joe Baker kicked that off earlier in the year as we kind of set the tone for where we're at in our understanding of talent, uh, what we might need to be looking at, and some of the issues that we're facing in terms of athlete development, even at the highest, highest levels. And there's a lot to unpack here. So with that general overview with Dr. Baker, we're going to start attacking certain parts of the talent conversation in hopes to get a deeper understanding of one, where we're at, two, what we do know at this point, and three, where we need to go. And we're really getting after it starting today. Today, again, the start of a three-part series on our talent, talent ID uh, theme oh, here for 2021. We'll have a couple of these series throughout the year. We're going to try to string together two and three shows at a time as we string together the ideas and the components. And we're starting here with episode number two of our series. Today, we're going to talk with Dr. Nima Deganzai, athlete development and talent ID specialist. We're going to talk about what exactly is skill? What is talent? How are we breaking that down and understanding it in the bigger picture? And we're going to talk about the idea of skill and skill acquisition, skill transfer and athlete transfer. There's a lot of interesting components here. Uh, Dr. Deganzai is currently working with Australia's Paralympic teams. What a challenging environment that is. We'll talk to him about that for sure. But I can't wait for today's show. Then, coming up on show number three of our series, we'll be talking with Dr. Lou Farah, sport researcher from York University. He specializes in talent and talent ID. He's uh, really honed in and focused his research on the draft, in particular the NHL draft, and what it takes to develop an NHL player. But we're going to talk about talent ID at the youth levels, talent ID uh, at the at the elite development levels, and also uh, the role of the scout and how organizations should be looking at talent and player development holistically. There's some great conversations to be had there. And then we're going to round out this three-part series with what is going to be a fascinating conversation. We're going to talk to Dr. Alex Roberts from La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Roberts has specialized in coaching and the coaching side of talent and talent development. And I can't wait for this conversation. Her most recent scientific publication titled The Coach's Eye, Exploring Coach Decision-Making During Talent Identification. We're going to talk about the coach's role in talent identification, choosing teams, and what exactly is a coaching bias. Oh, we've got a great series coming up, and we're going to kick it off right after this with Dr. Nima Deganzai, Athlete Development and Talent ID Specialist, right here on Crush Performance. Stick around, everybody. 
This is Crush Performance. If you have questions, comments, or smart remarks, write to us at CrushPerformance.com. All right, and welcome back to Crush Performance, everybody. I am Jeff Crushell. We're your weekly source for performance information. Hey, questions, comments, smart remarks, or listen, if you have a question about talent or something you'd like us to investigate, let us know. Again, that's what this talent series is all about. That's what our Science of Sweetness series is all about, the Crush War on Sugar. That's what every episode here on Crush Performance is all about, just getting to the bottom of it, getting answers and provoking thought as well. That's why we visit with some of the smartest people in the world. Today is no exception. Episode number two in the Crush Talent and Talent ID series. You can also follow me on Twitter and on all other social media platforms. Search out Crush Performance. We'll be posting links to our guests, links to the podcasts, of course, and also links to data and information that are relevant, not just to our series here on Crush Performance, but everything else that has to do with human performance in general. All right, as mentioned, this is episode number two of the Crush Talent and Talent ID series. I'm very, very happy to introduce Dr. Nima Diganzai, Athlete Development and Talent ID Specialist, who is currently working in Australia with their Paralympic Committee. Dr. Diganzai, thanks for joining us here today on the Crush Talent and Talent ID series. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I'm very excited to be here today. Well, we know that you've spent a lifetime studying this whole very cool area of athlete development and maybe even more importantly, talent and talent ID. I'd really, I'm really interested, uh, Dr. Degonzai, how, how did you wind up focusing on this area of study with everything that you've done? Yeah, and um, I think it's, uh, it's pretty, it was a pretty natural progression for me. I, I was involved in sports growing up. I, I loved playing sports. Um, and but I was never really good enough as an athlete to make it to the more elite levels. So it always was interesting for me to, you know, develop an understanding of how do athletes, um, expert athletes develop their skills to uh, reach those pinnacle points and um, finding out about uh, sports psychology field in general was very exciting for me going into university. And then from there on, it was just uh, having the opportunity to meet the right people and having uh, Dr. Joe Baker as my supervisor, who is really immersed into this field. And that opened up lots of doors for me to um, sort of address some of those. Well, first was accumulate uh, the knowledge from based on the literature in regards to what we already know. And then piggyback off of that to sort of unpack some of the things that we don't know and dive into this, uh, I guess, a rabbit hole in regards to what talent is and how do we identify talent. And, and yeah, the rest of this history really been uh, involved in this research ever since. Rabbit hole. That's a good, that's a really good way to describe this whole world of talent and talent ID. And I'm going to tell you, Nima, that's one of the reasons that we've sort of initiated this series on talent and talent ID. And of course, for everybody out there uh, kicking off this series, we had Dr. Joe Baker on sort of giving us an overview of where we're at in our understanding of talent and talent ID. And we have a lot of work to do. You are hanging your hat right now uh, working with the Australian Paralympic Society there. Um, what an incredible area of sport and sport performance that is. Yeah, it, it's been very, very exciting to uh, sort of take on this role. Um, it is almost an extension of my PhD. So, I, you know, my PhD, we looked at the athlete development and expertise and what the pathway really looks like within the Paralympic system in Canada and Australia. I had the privilege of working with the Canadian and Australian committees um, and the sport organizations, um, just really unpacking a lot of those general questions that we, we, we wanted to understand uh, from recruitment and initiation to maintenance and retention of athletes and their development all the way to talent transfer. And, um, yeah, once I finished my PhD, it was in a, you know, almost an extension going into this role, which is, um, I guess the title is athlete development and talent ID specialist. And, you know, it's very research driven and empirically, um, empirically driven. And we, we try to sort of bridge that gap with what we know and how do we implement these initiatives to, to better understand uh, where athletes come from, how can we maximize their development and um, get them to where they want to be. Ah, such an exciting thing. We're talking with Dr. Neiman Deganza. He's an athlete and talent ID specialist with the Australian Paralympic Society. Uh, Neiman, listen, uh, such such great things. And you mentioned something that's, that's 
actually quite fascinating there. And I don't know if our listeners might have picked up on it, but you mentioned the, the whole concept of talent transfer. Maybe before we get into this, this, this uh, conversation on talent and talent ID, you can maybe give us a little idea of what, what talent transfer is in the scope of athlete development. Sure. And I, and I think uh, there is multiple lenses to, um, you know, talent transfer. I think um, if the one that differentiates or where you can draw the line is athlete transfer versus talent transfer. And this is something we wrestle with continuously when, when you look at how you conceptualize definitions and terminologies within the system. Um, you can look at it from both ways. From a high-performance perspective, it's being able to um, allow athletes to transfer to other sports to have the potential to succeed at a podium level, so going at an international co- uh, competition. Um, this has benefits. You know, you have athletes who have gone through the ranks, who have, uh, can, you know, excessive ex- exposure to training and coaching, and, um, you know, they have a nutritional understanding of how they need to be at their peace, et cetera. Uh, so they have the idea of how to be a high-performance athlete. And so we're trying to maximize um, athletes' athletic career by providing opportunities in other sports if they are to shift away from sports. And I'm happy to dive into some of those reasons why athletes might want to transfer and some of the reasons why sports look at this avenue as one of the alternatives to recruitment and development of athletes. Um, The other is athlete transfer in regards to, you know, keeping athletes in sports for longer um, at a participation level. But most of the focus really for us uh, in the high performance is, you know, having, being able to transfer athletes that are, um, either elite or close to elite level at their sport and transfer them to another sport where they can, they have the potential to be um, competing at the national international level. Yeah, no, I think we, we, we need to talk about this a little bit more. It's such an incredible um, sort of idea when it comes to a sport, sport performance, the idea of talent transfer versus athlete transfer, just an incredible concept. You know, in our conversation uh, with Joe Baker that kicked off our talent, talent IDC series here this year, you know, we were talking about the whole idea of talent and what exactly is talent. And it's fascinating to note that, you know, there's really no official consensus across the board on what talent is. And that poses its unique challenges in the sporting community right from the get go, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that's one challenge that we're wrestling with. And if you really um, do find the, the robust definition of talent, I think it can be a millionaire very quickly. <laughs> um <laughs> Sports, uh, you know, pouring, you know, thousands and millions of dollars into it uh, from, you know, organizations from different sports just to be able to ident- um, conceptualize what talent is and how do you identify what talent really is. And I think uh, to extend on, you know, Joel's comments, it's, it's, we don't have a general consensus in regards to what um, what talent is and how we define it, let alone being able to identify it and when do we identify it across athletes' developmental careers. So, uh, I think that's where the challenge begins, but, you know, it, it ties into the complexity of athlete development in general. You know, the, the athletes, um, their evolution and their, their progression in their sport is so dynamic and, you know, different athletes take different paths to to the same level. But it, it's hard to conceptualize like, what really is talent. Um, and some most of the times, we're, you know, if you ask, like we, during our chat, we talked about it, if you ask, 10 people in the sport industry, what, what uh, talent is, you're, you're not going to, you're most likely not going to get the same answer uh, twice. Yeah. And that's incredible. If you think about it, because it's something that we all feel we kind of know what talent is, right? <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of a conundrum in a lot of ways, but more importantly, that difference in maybe definition or belief of what talent is can really, really influence how a coach or an organization goes about their business. Don't you think? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. When you look at it from a top-down approach, um, you know, um, how you conceptualize talent and how how you want to approach it really impacts um, the, the system in general, because then you start uh, looking for those factors while excluding others. And um, you, your window of um, selection or identification is dictated by that. And then that has this trickle-down effect of opportunity cost for athletes that are not within that sort of um, criteria or paradigm that you are establishing within your sport organization. And, and that can have consequences long-term, right? You're looking at, you know, we talk about how sport participation is such a key element to our society in general, but then as well as athletes who are, you know, you could, you know, again, this is the rabbit hole we talk about. You talk about late boomers, early boomers, 
Uh, when do you identify for for that talent? Is there multiple entry points? Um, are you exploiting athletes too early? Do we have sufficient resources to provide more opportunities for athletes? So there's so many different elements within that within that um, talent construct. So it all, but like you alluded to, Jeff, it all starts with how we define talent, and that's going to dictate how we approach the 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 rest of the system. Yeah, yeah. And even if we don't come up with a consensus, maybe it's very important for organizations at the start of their season or at their annual general meetings to maybe sit down and just review what that is for them. And maybe it's okay to have different different uh, definitions in different areas for different sports, different demographics, and maybe different age groups. Does that even resonate with you, Nima? I, I think, uh, like... Um... I agree. I think uh, you're you're going to have different definitions depending on the sport, um, and then there's just the challenge of you know, and we've talked about this before. Are making sure that we are looking at talent and not skill, and are we really looking at um, a talented individual or a skilled individual at an end day and at what level? But every sport is going to require different criteria for for uh, for success and. Um, even when you look at it within the same sport, if it's a team sport, for example, like you're looking at, um, you know, soccer, for example, uh, Barcelona is going to have a different style of play than Manchester United or Real Madrid. So that trickles down to their academy, what type of players they look for and how do they groom their players um, with their mentality or their philosophy of what successful athletes going to be performing within their system. So uh, they're going to have a different definition of what type of player they're looking for. Um, and really it comes down to what is that really, are we developing talent? Are we developing skill? Are we developing a player with specific characteristics on the field and off the field that's going to help them become better athletes? So, and I, I agree with you. I think it is very important um, for sport organizations um, in general, even researchers, how we conceptualize it within our research or as sport organizations, how do we define our terms? And how does that dictate our program and, and our structure? And the reevaluation and tracking of the data is very integral. And I think that's one of the things that um, sometimes we, we, we tend to miss when we implement initiatives or, or new programs. Um, we have that lack of trackability and uh, to hold us accountable to whether we've addressed the, the, the gaps that we want to address within for that initiative. And, you know, that's, the conversation we've had here with Paralympics uh, uh, Australia and, and entirely within the committee itself, as well as um, within our research team is if we're going to implement initiatives, um, being able to track it, monitor it, evaluate its efficiency and effectiveness, and then you can alter it if you can track it, right? Um, if you're not going to be able to all, you know, track that over time, then then you it's hard to uh, make adjustments um, to, to, to the system. Yeah, it really is. You know, one of our sayings here on the show, a problem accurately defined is already partially solved. And unless you have that that problem defined, it's really, really, if not impossible to come up with a clear solution. That is interesting stuff. We're talking with Dr. Nima Diganzai, who specializes in athlete development and talent ID. So, you know, talking about that, talking about getting that data and tracking it to get a better understanding, uh, Nima, where where are we at with that information? Because, you know, if you're a coach out there volunteering at the youth level or, you know, even if you're, you know, coaching a junior team or, or a high school elite varsity team, you might not know about this data that's being collected by the researchers. So I'm actually quite interested at where you think we're at in, in collecting all that and in, in our understanding of what this data is in feedback we're getting from it. Yeah, and I think you, you've uh, pointed out a massive gap that we have within our system is that disconnection from between different levels are within our sports, but as well as within the research industry and 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 sport organizations. And I think that's um, moving towards a more collaborative process. I see it with our with our lab as well as other labs internationally how they're. Most of the research is becoming more immersed within sport organizations and what their needs are. But one of the things that we continuously um, seem to identify and then through our conversation with my colleagues at Paralympics Australia, as well as other sport organizations that we worked with, is that lack of uh, clarity or communication between different levels. And, you know, how can we support our developmental coaches and, and pathway coaches or grassroots coaches and inform them of 
some of these research or empirically driven uh, findings, or how do we provide them with the suitable programs to to support their development? Because at the end of the day, like you mentioned, a lot of our programs are volunteer-based driven, um, and it, it's hard um, for for those coaches to go out there looking for these ex- external resources because they're already stretched for time and resources to start with. So um, it is a challenge that we're, you know, we always wrestle with, and how do we, uh, one, develop ideal programs for coach development and supporting coaches or our talent identifiers, but two, how can we translate this and spread the knowledge effectively to uh, at different levels for coaches? Um, so in short, I don't know if the answer your question is of where we at, but I think we have a lot of work to do is, uh, is uh, moving forward in that, in that paradigm. Yeah, no, and I agree. And I think that's exactly where we're at and what a massive undertaking it is, because if you think about it, um, it would have to be, what well, doesn't have to be, I mean, you could come up with some kind of pipeline for sharing this information, but you would think it would make a lot of sense for the federal government sporting organizations to sort of take the lead on, on this movement. And hopefully I know there's, we've got so many great people involved around the world, by the way, in, in sport and sport development. It's an incredibly exciting time. Uh, but that, that communication and clear communication from grassroots up to pro that could be a game changer. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of uh, issues within, not issues, but challenges to wrestle with, you know, when you're looking at the, the pipeline, um, including, you know, the funding system. Uh, is, do we have a funding system where, um, or a communication system where the high performance side is more aligned with the grassroots? Sometimes you see a, a bit of a separation where the high right. performance is a totally different sort of organization and then you have the grassroots which is its own sustainable system or um, you have local organizations where they try to provide multiple sports Um, and so there's that funding element to it as well as the structural and communication side to it but eventually uh, essentially if you do have that sort of a pipeline where you have that communication across you have you can spread your resources that's that's the ideal way where you can even provide athletes the opportunity, that clarity of how can you you can progress from different levels, um, and you know that provides you with multiple entry points, etc. Um, but that's you know that's in an ideal world we're speaking. <laughs> Whether we can establish that or get there or not, that's it's a bit of a challenge. Yeah, no, I really do like it. How how great would that be? Because you know one of the things that we see is you know we just don't know what the next level looks like, and 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 you know for athletes who are maybe committed to the high performance pipeline, um, you know, who, who are really interested in pursuing sport, whether it's getting onto a varsity team and going from a varsity team to collegiate or collegiate to a national team or pro contracts, having an idea of what that pathway looks like could be incredibly helpful. But I guess on the other side of that, that's why there's experts around in, in multiple uh, disciplinary, you know, integrated sport performance teams as well, which has just been a great innovation you know, in the athlete development and sport performance world. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges for athletes, and this is, ties back into those early talent identification systems, is because you know parents and coaches are so concerned about you know not missing out, uh, missing out on the, the selection or being left out in regards to their their um, their their kids or the athlete themselves being able to advance to the next level or be be promoted or be selected at the next age level that then you see that trickle down effect of these early more uh, earlier organized sports earlier talent id programs etc and, and it becomes like a cyclical issue because the earlier you start putting those the more um, people start being concerned in regards to if they're going to be a, a, the fear of missing out in regards to if you know if i just recreationally participate for now or I do multiple sports at a at a less elite level and then hopefully like there is entry points later on that you can sort of get into the sport and get become more competitive and there is um there is uncertainty there of whether you're going to be able to have your put your foot in the door and so it forces um kids and co-parents to really reflect on okay with if I want to go into um hockey eventually I want to become a hockey player I have to start the double AA, A, triple A hockey at age of eight and, you know, um, start really training specifically for hockey. So, it, it, you know, it, it ties back into that larger system of that clarity, multiple opportunities for entry and exit and, and providing that, that multiple, I guess, pathways for athletes to be able to um, 
I develop in a way that suits them and their environment better. Oh, what a fantastic conversation this is here on the Crush Talent and Talent ID series. We're talking with Dr. Nima Degonzai, athlete, development, and talent ID specialist. Uh, Nima, listen, this is uh, absolutely, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Like, there's no question about it. And I think, you know, with the greatest of intentions, all of those early identifications and, you know, this, this hyper-focus on elite sport, uh, with the greatest of intentions, there's a downside to that. Hey, let's get back to that conversation we had a little bit earlier, because I think this really ties in this, this, this whole concept of talent transfer versus athlete transfer. Um, you know, one of the things you did mention about the transfer of, of skill or talent between sports, I think that resonates well with our conversations around early specialization. And again, maybe the upside of the downside of early specialization. Um, but, but do, the, do those two things revolve in the same conversation? Right. Yeah, and, and I think um, the, well, the talent transfer, what we've seen, uh, there's very little uh, literature on this, um, both AbleBot and Parasite. Um, and there are programs like UK had a program, um, AIS did a program in Australia a few, um, uh, several years back. Um, I, one of the ways is uh, that this talent transfer approach is when you have a sport where there is the, there are gaps in the numbers at the elite level and um, there's opportunities for um, for fast tracking or or if I guess fast tracking success at these levels. So uh, sports or organizations look to identify athletes who've already had pre-existing training, uh, who've had been exposure to high performance sports, and uh, who who know concepts of coaching and how to how to carry themselves in that specific environment. And they look at sports that have a similar either tactical physical, physiological, or technical skills and um, look for athletes that could then look to transfer between sports in that, in that realm. I'm not sure if it would, uh, if I would personally put it on the same map as it is an entry point to a sport. Definitely. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think they're, they're, they're commonly spoken in the same conversation as um, when we go about talent identification um, and early specialization. But it is becoming, especially in in parasport, it is it is becoming a conversation to be had because um, because of the the challenges that we have within the system already, such as lower number of um, athletes within the system in general, um, and the cost that it takes to develop an athlete um, from the entry point to a high performance. And, and there there are specific reasons for athletes in para that they look for transfers, such as um, specific injuries or changes in the impairment that classes athletes out of their classification. So just a side note, there's a classification systems within parasport for, for, um, for audience that are not that familiar with parasport. There's your impairment um, might put you in a specific talent classification in a specific sport. Classifications are designed to um, facilitate a fair play among athletes who have a similar ability. So sometimes an injury or changes in your impairment might class an athlete out of out of their sport, or there's, there's that class classification doesn't have an international competition anymore. Sometimes they are removed or or added to the um, Paralympics or World um, World Championships. So that gives opportunity for athletes who who still feel like they have a lot in the tank and want to be in high performance sports to look for alternatives in other sports. So transfer becomes one of those vital entry points for these athletes that are ready as high-performance athletes just need to adjust um, and acquire specific skills to another sport. Um, so it is becoming a very much of a conversation uh, within within Terrasport uh, right now in regards to developing more of a formal transfer so we can support athletes that are looking for alternative opportunities. And it has been in discussion in AbleBot with regards to some of these sports that have less of participation numbers, where they can they can provide an entry point for athletes that that are seasoned and developed in, as a high performance athlete. Yeah, no, and I think that's fantastic. You know, I like the idea of having multiple options, and and again, not everybody's cut out for for every particular sport. You know, I had the luxury of working with some of uh, Canada's elite squash players, and I was really interested with these guys. They are absolutely incredible athletes like I, i'm thinking some maybe for me personally some of the most incredible athletes i've ever worked with and i've i've worked with elite athletes in virtually all the major sports uh these guys are just and and women are are just incredible 
And, you know, I was sitting there one day after a, a training session and I was just really, really intrigued how they wound up getting into squash. Because one of the young junior players that I worked with for years who came up and, you know, worked his way through the world ranks, um, he was a baseball player and a hockey player back in the day, always grew up around team sports. And I asked him what, what drove him towards squash. He goes, and this is what he said, Nima. He said, he said, you know, I just, I just didn't like that my, my future or my fate was in the hands of other people. I wanted control of what happened to me. So he goes, the individual sport uh, and squash was my sport. I loved it. He goes, that's just, you know, that's the main reason I went into that particular sport. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting perspective of looking at it. And, you know, that that's what sampling comes in for, right? And like we, when you give um, kids and, and like up-and-coming athletes the opportunity to experiment different sports in different settings um, and have different types of coaches, just to really explore themselves to be able to identify what it is that works for them. And it ties back to, you know, what our definition of talent is because everyone will want to be coached different. Uh, we have different preferences in regards to what type of game we want to play. Is it an individual? Is it a team? What type of team? So um, it, it is more and more complex. And when you have opportunities like that, uh, like this individual did with your um, example, is like that's that's beautiful. And the question becomes, well, how many athletes or potential athletes are we losing within the system that went to that experience in the specific sport they didn't like it but didn't find alternatives or didn't realize there was alternatives in other sports that they could carry on participating and they just put sports aside in its totality right. and you know those some of the, those are some of the questions that we still need to address is you know those those athletes that we we've really missed on or had had the negative experience and are not in sports anymore such an important conversation. That is a real worthy cause right there. We're talking with Dr. Nima Degonzai, athlete and develop athlete development and talent ID specialist with Paralympics Australia right now. Uh, Nima, let's get back to this. A really, really important question. I have it starred here. We talked about it earlier, um, but talent versus skill, talent and skill, the difference between talent and skill. Are we developing talent? Are we developing skill? There is a very distinct difference there that I think a lot of people just might not be familiar with. Yeah, and I and I think uh, this ties really well to our discussion about are we identifying talent or skill most of the time, and are we focused on developing skill versus talent? And you know what is talent and how do we define it? Um, I think uh, from a personal experience and you know reflecting back, most of the time we get fixated on skill um, at a, at any level, right? Um, you know, coaches across. Um, at any level, you look at it, most of the time they're under pressure to uh, show performance. No one gets uh, no one gets a pat on the back when when the athlete that you have developed uh, specific skills for ends up becoming an elite athlete ten years from now. Um, unfortunately, we don't track progress like that for our for our pathway coaches or our grassroots coaches where we say, you know these are the essential skills that we want to instill in athletes. Uh, so just in, they could become better persons, better athletes, and better players within that specific sport. Um, but it's just always performance, performance, performance. So we're more or less focusing on developing these specific skills that are uh, that are in indicators of success within a specific sport. Um, so most times, I feel like we do focus more on skill development and developing skills. Um, and I think that is part of being a talented person right uh in, in our lab we've we've wrestled with the idea of what talent is and you know led by dr joe baker in collaboration with some of our colleagues out in uoit and in germany with doctors uh, nick wadi and dr york uh, shore it's uh, looking at what uh, talent is and th there's an element to that that we look at is how, how do athletes able to acquire specific skills within a sport so it, it, i think it's part of it but most times i they are perceived interchangeably when we look into um, when we're identifying athletes for that are suitable within a specific sport. Uh, more or less, we're looking at their performance, which is an indicator of their skills within that sport at that specific time. Oh, that is such a great point. What a fantastic conversation here. Dr. Degonze, we have to cut out for a quick break. Everybody, if you can stick around when we come back, we'll continue to discuss the difference between talent and skill talent transfer, and man, are we putting a lot of pressure on our coaches? How can we do a better job of supporting our coaches at all levels of sport? And what is the role of the skill acquisition specialist? It's all coming up right after this on episode number two of the Crush Talent and Talent ID series. Stick around. 
you have any performance questions, comments, or smart remarks, text Crusher at 10 12 60 and follow him on Twitter at Jeff Crush. Now, here he is, the Crusher. Welcome back, everybody. It is episode number two of the Crush Talent and Talent ID series. We're joined today by Dr. Nima Diganzai, Athlete Development and Talent ID Specialist. Hey, if you have any questions, comments, smart remarks, or if you have something you want us to investigate in this series, or frankly, anything to do with human performance, let us know. Info at Crush Performance is our email. You can go to our website, crushperformance.com. You can sign up for the podcast, subscribe to the newsletter, and get all the social media links there. All right, let's get back to it, everybody. So much more to get to. Dr. Duganzai, thanks for hanging on over the break. We were just talking about how important it is to have transparency and understanding of the different stages of development through the athlete's timeline and developmental timeline. And and that's really, really important. It's something that maybe we certainly do need to do better. But I couldn't help but think to myself as we're talking about this, how much pressure we put on our coaches and I think we have to do a better job of supporting our coaches at all level of sport. Don't you agree? Absolutely. And I, I think we, we discussed this um, uh, topic a lot within our research team, as well as at work is, uh, we, you know, we focus on athlete development, providing an environment for athletes that is suitable for them, for their experiences and maximize their experiences. Um, but equally, if not more important is supporting our coaches across all levels, because the reality is an athlete will move on and, um, you know, hopefully they'll have a positive experience, but the reality is some will have positive, some will have negative, some will make it to an, a more an elite level. Some will choose to stay active for the rest of their lives. But our coaches most often are the ones that remain in the system and see so many athletes. And I think it becomes very integral to, um, to support those coaches because they're going to be the influencers. They're going to be the, uh, the, the truth on the ground that are really, um, working very hard um, and and passionately developing that environment or creating that environment for the athletes to to experience sport at any level. So, um, to, you know, to piggyback on your comment, I don't think we do enough to support our athletes at any level, uh, to support our coaches at any level, really, right? For the amount of work that they do, they're the first point of contact for our athletes, they're the, for, uh, the last point of contact when an athlete is leaving the sport. So um, supporting them is very integral and providing resources to, to support their development specifically so they can um, become, uh, you know, influencers within the, within the environment. And don't get me wrong, we have a lot of amazing coaches out there uh, and, and plenty of uh, great coaches out there for sure. It's just how can we support them further because they're doing such a fantastic job and the ones that are coming in, how can we make sure that they're able to learn from our seasoned and, and coaches and and uh, create that mentorship opportunity where knowledge can be passed down, that wisdom can be passed down from from more of our experienced coaches. Oh, I agree so much. How great would it be? And that goes back to sort of that conversation on that collaborative approach on the timeline. Hey, here's here's what your athletes look like right now. Here's what they should look like moving forward. Here's the next step, the next step. So every coach in the system has an idea of the, the, the developmental pathway, but also they have a better understanding of where they're at in that system. That is, I love that. And you're right. We do need to support our coaches more. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it goes, like you said, it goes back to that, having that effective and efficient and transparent pipeline where you got that uh, clear communication between uh, different levels. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Nima Diganzai, athlete in development and talent ID specialist. Well, this, this segues beautifully into this kind of last point I wanted to get to today, Nima, and, and a really important conversation. You mentioned a couple of things earlier that I thought were really intriguing. The idea of entry points for athletes. And and I think you uh, this really resonates with the conversation about, you know, our our urgency to get our young little grassroots players in elite pipelines before it's too late. So that's an important conversation. But also, I'd like to maybe match that right alongside the idea of critical periods of development. You know, we're talking about the pipeline and and, and the progressive development of athletes along this pipeline. Um, you know, the, the idea of critical periods of development is kind of under the gun a little bit right now. But we do know 
athletes do mature and develop as human beings, but also in terms of their knowledge of sports. So uh, between entry points and critical critical points in athlete development, uh, this is another very interesting conversation. Yeah, and I think it's it's a it's one that it's important to be considerate of when we're developing programs, we're developing resources for to support our athletes. Um, but I think putting too much, uh, you know, putting our eggs in one basket, I think, you know, if athletes miss, miss these critical points, then, then sort of their career is, uh, the career is over. If an athlete was not, a, did not play sports until 16 years of age, well, they're not going to be physically developed or physiologically developed enough to perform at a high level. I think then that we're really removing a percentage of, of, of our sample or our, our athletes that are, to me, it's not as, their approach in a sense and uh, you know but i think to inform our models or our development uh, programs it's important to consider some of these critical development points where assays are more receptive to specific uh, cognitive or physical developments um, as they're going through puberty as they're going through cognitive development phases but uh, to say that well these are the cutoff points in an athlete with this uh, they miss the criteria or may miss a critical point, then you know their career is over. I think it's a very, very slippery slope to to approach it in that sense too. I agree, and and you're so right. I think we're missing potentially a lot of incredible talent uh, later on in the developmental pathways. Really, really interesting stuff, and and that's important for coaches, parents, and athletes to be aware of. And of course, then you have the diversity of development, right? At early developers, late developers, and then of course. Uh, the exposure to sport and coaching. I mean, there's so many variables involved here, and that goes back to the conversation about that talent rabbit hole we mentioned earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And it gets a mess here when you look at the parasite as well. You know, for, for example, in Paralympic sport, you can have athletes that acquire their impairment at any age, and they're, they're entering sports at different levels at different ages, right? Right. So, um, and that's something that we've looked at within our research is the impairment onset and how that impacts athletes' developmental trajectories. Um, and, you know, we have uh, more work on the pipeline in regards to what the impairment type and how that influences athletes' uh, developmental trajectories. But um, it gets even messier when you look at the parasite where you have someone who develops an MS at age of, for example, 36 and gets into cycling at 38. Well, what is the critical age or critical point, developmental points for that, right? So a lot of this uh, sort of gets or should get thrown out of the window. But um, that, that's the complexity of athlete development and, and um, their specific experiences, like you said, um, coachability, self-regulation, cognitive development, um, their, their habits and the work ethics, resilience, all that. There's so many different factors that impact an athlete and how much the effort they put in within the training, how they absorb the information that's provided to them and how they reflect and you know implement that in a training session and then evaluate their own progress and then, you know, alter things and, and move forward and want to have that thirst and hunger to want to be better. And some of those metrics are not going to show up in a, in a critical uh, development point or, or in a, in a specific model. And then we have a hard time measuring for some of those things as well, or we don't measure them enough. So there, there is plenty of elements within development. And then once you add that, the nuances within development, it becomes even more um, complex for athletes with an impairment as well. Yeah, no question. What a great analogy that is. We've seen some of the uh, great Paralympic uh, performances, and these are athletes who started very, very late in their career because of circumstance. You're absolutely right. That is a fantastic and fascinating analogy. And not even to mention, uh, Nima, the the weekend warriors or the masters athletes, the people who have just decided, hey, I'm going to try to be the best I can personally be, maybe not competing on the world stage, but going to their uh, first or second or third Ironman to beat their personal best or, or, you know, starting out in a new sport late in life because they want to try something new. That's all very relevant as well. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, definitely in this conversation, we haven't touched on it as much as we need to. Um, we've been focusing too much on high performance, but sport participation has such a massive impact on person's development in general and their well-being. And there's so many positive effects to it socially, cognitively, physically, um, economically. So, and this is something we actually recently talked about within our research lab is that, 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 that message I think needs to be, um, more out there in regards to just sport participation in general, right? Pushing yourself to your own limits, whether it's you're going out for a 5k, how fast you run a 5k, irrespective of what your neighbor is doing or what your siblings doing, right? It's like how hard you're pushing yourself, 
um, or is, like you said, picking up a sport at, at a master's level and competing internationally. So whatever, at any level, I think there's a lot of benefits to sport uh, participation. And, and if, you, if you can find the opportunities um, to participate in sports, I think it's very, there's a lot of value in there. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the sibling thing right there. Listen, I have two brothers and I simply want to destroy them in everything that we do. So I totally dig that, man. You're absolutely right. Well, hey, listen, this has been just a great conversation and you're right. You know what we're going to do? And I'm going to, I'm going to put this out there right now, Nima, let's, let's save that topic for another day. Let's, let's maybe later on in the year or into the fall, let's do a show just talking about the importance of sport participation across the board. Cause you're right. We don't talk about that enough. So, so I'm going to put that on my list here. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to revisit that one with you. So, so we can maybe get that together for the fall. Oh, absolutely. It'll be my pleasure. Great. Well, one last thing that I really did want to uh, touch base with you on here as we uh, get into the Crush Talent and Talent ID series. And and I think we've set the stage really well here, talking about supporting coaches and supporting athletes along the way because they can't know it all. It's all about perspectives. And I love the research you guys are doing. And I really actually love the input from the Paralympic Society and, and inside of it because you guys have unique challenges that are really incredible and you guys are overcoming them. Um, so, so, you know, this collaboration in sport that we're seeing right now is great, but there's been an interesting development, you know, in professional sport, we're seeing performance directors and directors of sports science, and we have directors of analytics, and we're getting all of these specialists now in elite sport. Um, but there's been one development that I'm really intrigued in, and that's the uh, development of the position uh, for a skill acquisition specialist. Maybe we can just sort of wrap our conversation up around this position and what it means for sport and why something like this is so important right now. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, for every audience who may not know, the skill acquisition specialist really um, most of the time works at a high level from within a high-performance environment, working directly with coaches and athletes. Um, one of their their main goals, of course, as the as the title alludes to, is um, identifying ways to uh, manipulate the environment to facilitate um, acquisition of a skill or supporting development of a skill further for an athlete. Um, but you know, I we did a, a research on this, uh, interviewing a couple of uh, Olympic and Paralympic uh, coaches who were who has been working with the skill acquisition specialists who've been immersed in their environment for uh, three to five years. And what we found is that a skill acquisition specialist role goes way beyond that. Um, and it was very interesting to us. There was a lot of um, collaboration um, and, and the importance of the, the skill act, skill act specialist uh, being able to bridge that gap that we spoke about in regards to research and, and practice. So a lot of the coaches or the coaches in our study saw the the skill act specialist being one that sort of pulls away all the jargon that's in the literature, finds the golden key nuggets and provides those to the coaches so they can facilitate these more, more in the, in the um, sporting environment. But there's also that key element in regards to the interrelationship, interpersonal and interpersonal relationship. And for the skill act specialist to know where their, where their position is within the sport, how can they support the athlete and the coaches? And I think one of the, the arms that really goes, um, it's very underrated and goes unnoticed is how a skill act uh, specialist dev, uh, supports the coach's development just as much as athletes' development of the skills because they provide them with those essential key nugget points and provide these different types of strategies that an environment could be manipulated, et cetera. And one of my colleagues that I work with, uh, Dr. Ross Pinder out in Australia, he's developed a brilliant team within the Paralympic Innovation at Paralympics Australia of, uh, of skill act specialists and really, the goal is to provide information and develop a self-sustaining system where the coach can become that individual who um, can continue to uh, control and dictate those different constraints within that training environment that can facilitate a better learning outcome for the athlete, whether it be an environment, the task, or the individual themselves. Fantastic stuff. And what an important uh, position that is. I don't think it's really... Uh, made its way here into North American sport uh, as much as Australia there. But I was fascinated at the concept. I, I actually wasn't familiar with it until recently, uh, but I absolutely totally appreciate it. And, and the, the other thing to, to maybe note about that particular position is 
it's it's maybe it's not necessary that the skill acquisition specialist be an expert in a particular sport. And it might even be beneficial that they're not an expert in that particular sport. Yeah, absolutely. I think you nailed it there. You know, most of the times we chat about it, uh, we joke and say it's sometimes better if you don't know anything about the sport. And you just walk into the training environment because you start asking questions that makes everyone think that they never thought because it's just the way it's been done um, historically, right? Um, the coaches pass on these uh, uh, these things down to their coaches and their athletes and so forth. And so it's just like literally walking to, a, for example, a table tennis uh, warm-up and saying, well, why are we warming up this way? And everyone just stops like, well, we've always warmed up this way. Right. So it's, more, so it's almost bringing that innovative different mentality to us to an environment where the coach has exhausted every alternative option within the sport so you're bringing something totally outside of the sport into that into that environment and that's where it becomes innovative that's where it becomes unique and i think that's where a skill act really fits in well so if anything you as a skill act i suggest you know don't try to be an expert in a sport um there is experts in this world our coaches are experts they're brilliant at what they do they're brilliant at developing their athletes we don't need to be the second coach when we go in so it's for more or less it's for us to probe those questions or ask those questions that an external person would ask just looking at a sport within the training environment and and i think that ties really well into what the role of a skill act is and not stepping on the toes of the coach because at the end of the day it's, it's a coach's um environment um, it is it is their athletes, and as well, it's important to understand that the relationship between the coach and the athlete, and the, the level of different um, hierarchy of uh, relationships. And you're you know working alongside of the coach, providing feedback, not necessarily as saying, well, you're you know there's this is the way we should do it, or this is the right way of doing it. No, it's just uh, probing or or providing questions that challenges the way we've done things in the past within a sport that you look at say, well, we can be a bit more innovative or we can be more efficient with our time. Or, um, you know, if an athlete doesn't respond well for this type of training, well, what are some alternative ways we can sort of stimulate or change behavior in a specific way? I love it. A unique perspective, so to speak, that that really bodes on the whole spirit of collaboration, which is what sport needs to be. Oh, Dr. Nima Deganzai, Athlete Development and Talent ID Specialist. What an incredible conversation here today for the Crush Talent and Talent ID series. Really, really appreciate it. And I'm telling you what, I am actually really looking forward already to our next conversation where we we will focus on the importance of sport and sport participation. But for today, thank you so much for this conversation. You know, you've really got hopefully our audience and everybody out there thinking about maybe things they haven't thought about before in the true spirit of maybe that skill acquisition specialist, Dr. Neiman. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. All right, there you go, everybody. Dr. Nima Deganzai, Athlete Development and Talent ID Specialist. What a fantastic way to kick off episode number two of our three-part Talent and Talent ID series here. Uh, just such an important conversation and so much to break down and unpack You know, from this entire interview and this entire episode here. You know, it's really, really important that we try to understand and identify what talent actually is and the difference between talent and skill. There's a very important difference there that we need to understand, especially within our organizations, right? I mean, it was a great comment that Dr. Deganzai made, you know, in terms of what do we value in our organizations? And for the most part, it's that skill, but skill doesn't necessarily equal talent. So we have to define what do we value or what do we find important in terms of helping athletes succeed not just in sport but in life in general let's face it on the developmental levels it's more about community and developing people holistically right sport just happens to be the vehicle now if kids catch fire and want to pursue the high performance pathway well as they move up that model those organizations really need to be very clear on what they value in terms of performance and how they go about developing their athletes within their systems. And that might be from a talent perspective, also from a skill perspective. And understanding the difference between those two is critically important. Absolutely critically important, especially for the long haul and as you move up the chain. And that brings us to another incredible point I think that was brought up today was the idea of transparency and collaboration uh, on the athlete pathway. You know, it doesn't matter where you're coaching, what age group or what skill level, 
if you understand clearly where you're at and what the goals and objectives are at that particular moment of an athlete's uh, sporting and developmental career, then you have a better idea and a better chance of being successful as a coach. If you know what came before and maybe more importantly, if you know what's supposed to come next in the developmental timeline, well, that's really, really important. And then from the elite perspective, if they were more open and sharing as to what they are looking for in young athletes, well, when a young boy or girl pursues sport in the high performance pathway, you know, if that step by step, stage by stage is is progressively working towards what's important at the top, wouldn't that make a lot of sense? And I think it's happening to some degree right now, and I think it's getting better for sure. There's so many great things going on in sport right now, but that's one area. As as Dr. DeGons, I mentioned that we really, really can probably get better. It will really help out the entire system, right? And then the other thing, maybe the last thing I will get to today, we can't unpack this entire show again. Listen, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this episode and probably every other one uh, just to really make sure I understand everything that's said here, right? But but I've been in this world forever and I've seen the discrepancies and that's one of the reasons that we're putting together this series is to get maybe a little more clarity from all these experts in the world on on what's important at certain stages of development, but also um, what we can do right now to help the entire model collaborate across the world and inside of our, our own organizations work better. And one thing that I think is really important is supporting the coaches. We just can't get away from that. And I think everybody knows that, but are we giving them the support they need and, and the right kind of support with the means available? Let's face it, man. We don't have a a, a bottomless bankroll that's uh, funding all these programs. We have to really, really be creative and also maybe very deliberate as to where we focus our efforts. And I think, you know, for the most part in Canada, Australia, we're doing a really, really good job. I'll humbly say that probably Canada is one of the world leaders in coaching development timelines that goes right alongside that ingenious long-term athlete development program from Sport Canada. Really, really smart. I think there's so many countries that are adopting that model, maybe modifying it a bit, but for good reason, because it makes a lot of sense. Now, if we could start working with our coaches and supporting them, especially at the developmental levels where, for the most part, people are volunteering. And then set the standards for our hired coaches in our high-performance pathways. Really make sure that they're collaborating and working together uh, with the coaches above and the coaches below. So we have a beautiful, beautiful stream. And at the end of the day, it's all about helping our athletes. And that skill acquisition specialist that we talked about there, man, what a powerful, powerful position that is. I really like the whole concept of somebody who's not specialized in a sport coming in, not just to help the athletes get better, but also to give a perspective and conversation and thought-provoking ideas to the coaches, to keep the coaches thinking, because it's so easy. I'm guilty. I've been there. It's so easy to get caught up in your mindset, in your bubble, and in your strategy that uh, it can be really helpful when somebody from the outside, whether they're right or wrong, comes up with an idea or brings up a point that you can make an adjustment on. And whether you do or not, it's entirely up to you, but to get you thinking about things. Man, what a powerful thing that is. So I love this whole idea of skill acquisition specialist. And I kind of like to think that's what kind of the role that I've taken, you know, later in my strength and conditioning career, you know, really working with the coaches. So let's face it, um, provide them with athletes that are incredibly coachable. And that takes a collaboration. Uh, Athlete to athlete, by the way understanding what each particular athlete might need in terms of athletic ability to get done what the coaches really, really need them to do. Oh, so much fun. What a fantastic conversation. Unfortunately, we couldn't fit the whole conversation into today's show. So coming up this Wednesday, you can get the entire conversation on our podcast. Go to crushperformance.com, click the podcast and search out episode number two of our talent and talent ID series. That'll do it for today, everybody. We're, we are literally out of time here. So listen, uh, this is episode number two of our of our Talent in ID series. Uh, Dr. Joe Baker kicked it off earlier in the year and sort of set the stage, the, the master plan for where we're at and where we need to go. Uh, and now we're going to attack these little areas with all these unbelievable experts. Again, I have to thank Dr. Nima Deganzai for joining us today. 
Coming up next week, you won't want to miss this episode. We're going to talk with Lou Ferris, sport researcher from York University, who has spent his entire research career looking at talent ID and most recently the NHL draft. He did his master's looking at what makes a great NHL player. And he's focused on the NHL draft. But we're going to talk about talent ID, draft, and scouting. What exactly should we be looking at? And are we looking at the right things when it comes to evaluating talent and predicting future performance? It's going to be a big one. And I can't wait. Until then, everybody, get out there, have some fun, stay safe, and go get a little bit better. We'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance. Goodbye now. Don't forget to ride. I'm Jerry Petock, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. Radio Influence.